Alrighty, everybody, welcome back to some more Rare Petro content. And today we have the Basin Breakdown for the month of May. I'm joined again today by Kevin Olson. Hey, it's good to be back. Thanks for having me again, Tavis. Oh, no problem. Always a pleasure. And we'll try to hit you with some pretty good news. Starting off in the DJ Nibrary, you know, nice and close to home, we're going to give you some financial and economic impacts on Colorado. So back in 2015, Colorado's population was a mere 5 million people, and that number is expected to double over the next three to four decades. Because of this projection, Colorado has prioritized the problems of drought, climate change, and increased municipal demand. Outside of the state budget, the biggest source of funding for these water projects is the severance tax associated with oil and gas production, which is quickly plummeting thanks to coronavirus. Fortunately, sports gambling was approved in the state early last month in an effort to make up the difference in funding. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of sports betting going on right now, and therefore no money for these water projects that are going to require about $100 million in funding annually. Best estimates say that the gambling alone will generate no more than $29 million a year. Well, this doesn't seem great. No, <laughs> it doesn't bode well for the future at all. I mean, a difference of about $70 million? I mean, even at the start of this project, it's already starting at a deficit, and they're only going to require more and more money from that severance tax. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, we had kind of discussed this a little bit earlier. You know, maybe a few years down the road, you know, that $100 million might turn into 200 300 you know, as funding just keeps kind of disappearing. So we'll see what our leaders can do to try and make up that gap. In other news, in Colorado, Judge Lewis Babcock, a Ronald Reagan appointee, sided with conservation groups ruling that the Trump administration's approval of 171 proposed natural gas wells neglected to consider the cumulative effects of drilling on climate change and the nearby deer and elk populations. Other actions from federal courts with similar stances range from orders for more environmental analysis all the way to cancellation of oil and gas leases across hundreds of thousands of acres in western states. U.S. District Judge Brian Morris, an appointee of Obama, was responsible for such lease cancellations. He claims that it risks harm to water supplies and the greater sage-grouse. He also struck down a nationwide permitting program for new oil and gas pipelines in a lawsuit against the controversial Keystone XL oil sands pipeline from Canada. Many have accused Morris of acting as an activist judge. And I don't know about you, Tavis, but I'm all for, you know, environmental support, all stuff like that. But, you know, when a, a cancellation of 171 proposed natural gas wells just kind of overnight is a little bit frustrating, especially in times like today when, you know, stuff is struggling to get done in the first place. Yeah, that is definitely a huge generalization. So I don't know if all of those are problematic, but I would wager that they are not. So... Hopefully, active review will allow some of them to go through, but it does seem like there is some tensions and both sides think the other is wrong. We've seen lots of effects from the depressed gas prices throughout the past couple of months, but sometimes the supply chains and those affected might surprise you. It's been no secret that the oil and gas industry has been suffering amidst the COVID pandemic and price wars, but what does that mean for the communities that are built around the industry? It may not be completely obvious how drastically the oil and gas industry influences the area around it, but effects from the diminished drill and production activity have started to trickle down to other businesses. Chris Golding, a welder in the DJ Basin, has had his hours slow from 100 per week, congratulations, good man, I couldn't keep up with that, all the way down to about 20 to 30 hours. 
Most of these hours are spent on odd jobs serving local businesses making renovations rather than rig and pipeline repairs that he's used to performing. Justin Mapes used to be a quality control manager for a now-defunct oil and gas firm. Today, he is attempting to print t-shirts. Jose Casillas owns a Mexican restaurant in Evans, but the decreased oil and gas activity has dropped demands for his orders around 60% because companies don't need the large morning burrito catering orders. Hotels that normally house workers and traveling employees have only been between 20-40% to 40% capacity, with fewer work trucks out in the lot. A lot of communities have been built around oil and gas, and these are perhaps the ones that are most affected right now. Heading up north to the Bakken, we've seen that the average break-even price for producers in the Bakken is $46.54 a barrel as compared to the $40 required down in the Permian. This is why Bakken Shale has been taking some of the hardest hits from recessed prices. Colorado-based Bakken operator Resource Energy realized they would need to consider shutting in more of its output. It is simply uneconomic to produce, much less transport the oil, and many operators are coming to that conclusion as well. You know, this is tough information to see, but, you know, sometimes you just got to, you know, take the hit and realize that you got to focus your your energy and your resources in other areas. Yeah, definitely, what, win some and lose most, it seems like, but... <laughs> Continental Resources is the largest producer in North Dakota and was clearly displeased at a hearing for operators held at the end of May. Continental's vice president, Blue Holsey, said, North Dakota can be a leader as far as action is concerned. This comes hot off the heels of two other hearings. The first hearing in Texas focused on a motion to implement production limits but was eventually shut down. The second hearing in Oklahoma recognized some production as waste, allowing some producers to shut in wells without losing leases. This is a move that was widely adopted by many of the top oil and gas producers, and Oklahoma has not fully declined the idea of limiting production. North Dakota has been struggling for a bit, but has not taken too much action in response to COVID and the price war since April when it considered paying operators to restart wells. Fortunately, that was not an avenue that was pursued, as the following months would have been extraordinarily costly for the state. But to tie into that, Last month, in North Dakota, 6,800 wells were shut in, or about 42.5% of the 16,000 active wells. Plenty of tax revenue, like we mentioned, is generated from those wells, and this is why North Dakota's director of the Department of Mineral Resources has created the Bakken Restart Task Force in hopes to, quote, secure, strengthen, and stimulate North Dakota's energy future, end quote. The oil and gas industry supports 72,000 jobs in the state directly and indirectly and was, was estimated, past tense, to generate $5 billion in state revenue in June and July alone. $5 billion in two months. That's pretty significant, but what, what all is that coming from? I, I mean, you know, kind of as we talked, you know, but back in Colorado, there's a lot of association through the oil and gas industry. You know, those breakfast burrito orders, those hotel costs, you know fuel at the gas station, all of those in add to those, you know, state revenues. And I mean, it is a huge number, but when you think about how important oil and gas is to the North Dakota economy, I'm really not surprised at the size of the number. It's staggering, but it, it really makes sense if you think about it. Yeah. Most of their portfolio comes from taxes from oil and gas, right? Mm -hmm. Exactly. So it's, it's unfortunate that their lifting costs are so much higher down in the Permian, but who knows, maybe this is going to Force North Dakota to figure out how to lower those lifting costs, you know, whether it be figuring out better transportation systems, et cetera, et cetera. Who knows? Maybe this is going to be, you know, a good thing for North Dakota. Heading up to Pennsylvania in the Marcellus area, 
It's been no secret that Shell has been attempting to get out of North American shale for the past few months, but it finally divested its Appalachian assets to National Fuel Gas Company for $541 million. This seems to be a pretty good price for the 450,000 net leasehold acres with 350 producing wells already in place and net proved developed natural gas reserves of 710 billion cubic feet of gas in only half of that acreage. Unfortunately, National Fuel Gas is financing this deal with a mix of equity, including equity-linked securities, and long-term debt, which could prove to be costly for the short and long-term. Through this agreement, National Fuel Gas has the right to issue $150 million in common equity to Shell at $38.97 per share. It seems like a pretty good deal for Shell, either... They make some money off the sale or they get big along with national fuel if they play this right. But yeah, does seem like a pretty good deal for Shell. Kind of like you said, you know, if this deal flops, well, you know, they made their $541 million, But if, you know, this proves to be some massive gas field, then Shell's got, you know, a piece of the pie. And then next, if you remember from last month's news polls, the Basin Breakdown, we talked about how Pennsylvania is concerned with acquiring the funds to plug and abandon orphaned wells, since some of them could prove to be uh, an environmental danger, although not all of them are. In recent weeks, though, many different organizations, conservative and liberal, have started to agree that paying oil workers to plug wells could be a viable solution. Mark Klein, president of the Pennsylvania Independent Petroleum Producers Association, said, a lot of people are going to be out of business if we don't find some way to keep busy and make money. Unfortunately, no money has currently been pledged, although the Center for American Progress estimated that a $2 billion fund could support 14,000 to 24,000 jobs in energy-producing states. Environmental advocates fear that a cutoff in the money supply could be far too soon, allowing companies to abandon their efforts before all orphan wells are accounted for. I think this is awesome. You know, we we spent a while talking about this last month, but I just think it's great that the state is trying to come up with ways to keep our oil and gas workers busy. You know, um, they've got families, they've got rent, they've got to pay for food. I just think it's great that they're trying to develop this program to make sure people have income. You can maintain their livelihood. Uh, yeah, it's fantastic. I mean, they were already struggling for money and resources and workforce, so... Why not put somebody else to use who's already familiar with the process? I think this is fantastic. Fingers crossed that they can get this funded. Yeah, but unfortunately, it seems funding seems to be one of the largest issues, especially for our friends in the Powder River Basin. As Trump has recently approved cuts for oil and gas royalties on public lands, Wyoming lawmakers are bracing for a significant revenue shortfall from the Powder River Basin. Shannon Anderson, an attorney with the Powder River Basin Resource Council, says Wyoming has tied its wagon to oil and gas development. Having the feds excuse royalties like this could interfere with the state's ability to provide health care and education for Wyoming. Fortunately, oil and gas generates enough revenue to allow it to be a priority for the state. Unfortunately, renewable energy is experiencing its fair share of struggles as well. The solar industry expects to employ just two-thirds of the workers it originally projected through June, and almost half of the jobs lost in the energy sector during the pandemic have come from the renewable energy industry, which was surprising to me because I hadn't heard any reports on that at all. I mean, I understand we're not a renewable energy business, but still, most of the stuff I read about is how people are divesting from fossil fuels and into renewables, so you think there'd be some growth there, but we'll get into that a little bit more later. Unfortunately, we've got a little bit of bad news for the Powder River Basin. 
Ultra Petroleum Corporation, the largest gas producer and taxpayer in Wyoming, has recently filed for bankruptcy. Operations for Ultra halted back in September of last year as the company had too much debt and they did not want to produce at such depressed prices. Now that prices are even lower, they have filed voluntary pensions for reorganization under Chapter 11 of the Bankruptcy Code. They plan to turn all $2 billion of their debt into equity. The goal of the restructure aims to result in an enterprise with little debt, good liquidity, and significant free cash flow that supports a large-scale, low-cost base of natural gas and condensate production. Unfortunately, this is, ultra, this is not Ultra's first experience with bankruptcy as they filed for Chapter 11 back in 2016. You know, it's never good when we see operators, you know, filing for bankruptcy, but it sounds like they have a good plan in place for the future and they have a goal of, you know, the company they want to become. So let's hope that they can get a, you know, a solid restructuring and, you know, be well set for the future. I think they'll have lots of resources at their disposal because they got that title largest Wyoming taxpayer. So I think the local government's going to do all that they can to help them out. As we head over to the Permian Basin, it looks like it's the same story we've been seeing for months. Everyone is struggling nowadays, and even the majors aren't safe. At the end of the first quarter, ExxonMobil recorded $610 million in losses. This is the first quarterly loss since 1988, way back before it had merged with Mobil. ConocoPhillips also reported a loss in the tune of $1.7 million, and Chevron reported a $3.6 billion profit thanks to improved financing at refineries, but it did warn that it would be cutting production in the Permian. Majors have finally come to the realization that this will affect everyone much longer than initially anticipated. Even Shell cuts its shareholder dividend for the first time in decades. Unfortunately, Plenty of majors include the Permian Basin within their production portfolios and will tailor their plans toward limited production. Chevron plans to wean off about 125,000 barrels per day overall, and Exxon will shut down at least 75% of its drilling rigs by the end of the year. This report came from earlier in the month when prices were depressed, so things are looking a little bit better now, but still not great looking into the future. But by the end of the month, we had an article at the end of May and many states began to lift restrictions on travel bans in that time and business interactions. Domestic oil prices had rebounded to the low $30 range, and things were beginning to look up, despite companies planning huge cuts within the Permian just a few weeks before. Production was cut only by about 87,000 barrels per day. This means that the Permian had experienced the lowest rate of decline for the month among the major basins. Although this was one of the largest falls in magnitude, it only accounts for about 2% of the total production. By comparison, the Eagleford fell 36,000 barrels per day, which accounted for 3% of its production. The Permian also holds the largest share of rigs in the U.S., with 162 total rigs at the end of the month, with the next highest being the Haynesville Shale in Arkansas at 32 rigs. This report, like we mentioned, came from the end of the month, and you, you can see how significantly the tone changes just by <laughs> oil pricing. Yeah, and, you know, it's it's something that we've been noticing, too. A lot of, you know, majors, even, you know, the, the smaller companies are really trying to focus on the, its Permian assets, just lower lifting costs, you know, a lot more um, exploratory work can be done in there, whereas a lot of other basins at this point is pretty much just infill drilling. Yeah, just like you mentioned, a lot of people are looking towards the Permian. It is one of the hot spots, and it kind of makes the Eagleford Shale look like Texas's red-headed stepchild as the Permian takes the economic blow just a little bit better. 
Data from the end of May argues that the Marcellus could become one of the new fracking capitals, but the Eagleford is clearly struggling as it operates at 14% of the active frack crews it would have typically had at this point in the year. Of the 450 available hydraulic fracturing fleets in North America, only 70 are out and working, and some experts believe these estimates lie closer in the range of 50, although neither estimate is good. The rig count shows that the Eagleford has seen declines of 64% as fewer people continue to drill. And that's about all that's been going on for the Eagleford. Like Kevin said, most of the efforts have been directed towards the Permian. But I think we've spent enough time in Texas popping on over to California. The University of California has fully completed fossil fuel divestment, fully removing it from the $126 billion investment portfolio. With 285,000 students, UC has become the largest educational system in the United States to remove its investments from fossil fuels in favor of renewable energy. The chair of the UC Board of Regents Investment Committee said, As long-term investors, we believe the university and its stakeholders are much better served by investing in promising opportunities in the alternative energy field rather than gambling on oil and gas. The group has moved more than $1 billion in fossil fuel into renewable energy investments and continues to put more into other energy projects. And then underneath this article, just as a side note, I found a comment from a man simply named JB. And he said, great PC move. Might just keep the children you educate from noticing your huge incomes and your padded retirement slush funds. And I got to say, I think he's got a point. (laughs) JB might also be a little bit upset with the fact that California cities have initiated climate suits against big oil companies operating within their state. These lawsuits claim that big oil created a public nuisance and should pay for the damage from climate change and help build seawalls and other infrastructure that could cost tens of billions of dollars. San Francisco attorney Dennis Herrera said, It's time for these companies to pay their fair share. They should not be able to stick taxpayers for the bill for the damage that they are causing. Well, back in 2019, oil and gas companies contributed to over $40 billion in state sales and property taxes alone. I don't know about you, Tavis, but I think they're already paying their part. Oh, no. If they require uh, tens of billions, $40 billion sounds like a couple tens of billions that might be effective. <laughs> well, we'll just see. Maybe we'll have JB go down to the courtrooms and, and voice his opinion. <laughs> but on a less light note, heading over to Scoopstack in Oklahoma... Chesapeake Energy Corporation announced that bankruptcy is an option after posting a net loss of $8.3 billion in the first quarter. At its largest, 12,600 people were employed with Chesapeake. After half a decade of cuts, that number dwindles to 1,900 people. Instead of using bankruptcy to restructure its debt, Chesapeake has also considered going private, although they have noted that there is no guarantee it will succeed in restructuring. A line in Chesapeake's filing reads, Management has concluded that there is substantial doubt about the company to continue as a going concern, which is kind of sad. I mean, Chesapeake, one of the big boys, slowly withering away. I mean, seen it for a few months now. Yeah, it's just, you know, times are tough and, you know, everyone's struggling. And, you know, let's just hope that these guys can pull through. And, you know, while it's not 12,600 people that they're employing, that's still 1,900 people that would lose their jobs if these guys go under. So. Additionally, Oklahoma met in May to establish some new policies to aid producers within oil and gas. After a long meeting, no action was taken, and some became upset with the decision to declare some production was economic waste. Most operators support the proposals as they are unsure of what the future prices will be, 
and some buyers have already said that they will not be pursuing due to lack of storage. Crawley Petroleum Corporation stands against the crowd, arguing that the implications down the road could be devastating. The notion that we don't have the right to do this, shut in Wells, absent of this order is a fallacy, said Crawley CEO Kim Hatfield. He urges policymakers to reconsider the order as it may establish a precedent for lawsuits in the future. It sounds like, you know, Kim Hatfield is just upset that they're wasting time defining why they should shut in production. I, I can kind of see his frustration here because it does seem like wasted time. This really leaseholders are the only thing standing in the way, but it seems almost nationwide right now people are able to shut in as the market is regulating itself. So hopefully this time could be spent better. I don't know, coming up with effective policies that weren't things that were already occurring. But I think that wraps it up for the month. I mean, that is the news for May and, you know, a little bit good, a little bit bad, but I, I'd say we're trending towards the right direction. Absolutely. You know, Steps in the right direction, you know, even if they're small steps, are steps in the right direction. That's progress. And what, we hit $40 just this month. So hopefully <laughs> about 30 days from now, we'll have something good to report about June. But until then, make sure you go to rarepetro.com, subscribe to the podcast. Kevin's been writing a whole lot of periodicals lately, so give those a check. I appreciate it, Tavis. So yeah, definitely check out our website, subscribe to our you know, LinkedIn page, you know, we're constantly bringing you guys updates on what's going on in oil and gas. So thanks for tuning in and uh, we'll talk to you soon.